Moeller, and this is Anatomy of Change, a podcast series about the struggle and connection in making courageous change in the systems and structures that thread our lives. In this episode, a father was imprisoned in 60s communist Romania for protesting as a university student. Later, his son would grow up and immigrate to the West. How did the story of his father and early years in Romania shape experiences and ideas about free speech and propaganda? Do we want to start there? Oh, we can start there. Yeah. yeah. So, why be anonymous? Well, this, first of all, was a hard uh, question that I had to ask myself, and it goes against uh, what I truly believe, which is that freedom of speech is very important and everyone should exercise it. I'm trying to do just that through this interview, but at the same time, I'm not an activist. I'm just a regular person. I have a family. I have a life uh, that is not activism. I'm not... Mm -hmm ready to to put that on the line. What has been happening recently, and I think we recognize that everywhere around us, there are very vocal activist groups that have made it their mission to to fight for their cause by going outside of, you know, just political discourse. They have gone into making it personal, doxing people, chasing people, around and like getting in their face, messing up with their livelihood. The mob mentality is setting them up for just a lot of abuse on social media or even at their workplace, getting in touch with their employer and, you know, making demands that the person be fired just for holding a different point of view and so on, right? So uh, it is a sorry state of affairs today when someone has to, in the course of exercising their free speech, they have to think about consequences like that. So for this series, we're going to use the name Romeo. Free speech is a societal construct. So we can only have free speech when that free speech is protected at multiple levels. It's not just something that the government needs to protect or not infringe Mm -hmm. Upon The society at large also has to respect that right. If the society doesn't, and if it becomes acceptable to prevent someone in exercising, uh, you know, the right of free thought and free speech, if it becomes the norm in society that people self-censor themselves because of uh, the fear of consequences, then I would argue we already lost that free speech. Can you take us back to your childhood and what was it like to grow up in communist Romania? And you talked about your father. Yes, I grew up under communist uh, Romania. I grew up under the Ceausescu regime, the last surviving dictator in Eastern Europe when uh, the revolutions swept away communism from power. Um, So um, everybody knows about the Berlin Wall and in the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia and, you know, solidarity uh, in Poland. 
So those were uh, movements that they were successful in in removing, um, you know, communism in those countries, uh, and they happened ahead of Romania. So uh, in Romania it was a very strong form of of communism that was enforced uh, dramatically by the secret police, and the country was, uh, you could say, very much like North Korea today, um, completely isolated from the world in general, and things were control with an iron fist. And people really didn't have access to information about uh, what was happening elsewhere in Eastern Europe. So um, I can tell you that when we had our own revolution and Ceausescu was uh, swept away from power and ultimately he was executed for the, for the damage he did to the country, uh, a lot of the people in the country, myself included, actually didn't know what was going on elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And we, we didn't know how those events were truly happening and what was driving them because we had just been exposed to insane amounts of propaganda and lies. Uh, and the source of information were very scarce. So people that uh, were in the know, so to speak, or had access, yes, they may, may have uh, had some information and of course they would spread to their families. Some people were... Uh, listening to uh, Voice of America and Radio Free Europe. Some people, you know, they, they would have a radio, like shortwave radio, and they would, would listen to those transmissions um, mm -hmm. every night. Uh, but it was a clandestine thing, and, you know, if the secret police caught you doing that, uh, you'd end up in prison. In, in our house, this wasn't a regular thing. Like, you know, we would maybe listen once in a while if we heard about something being happening. And why was it not a thing? Because uh, my father uh, had actually already spent five years in communist prison for his convictions or speech. When he was uh, a student, so in 1956, um, he was a student in university, and um, there were uprisings in Hungary. Uh, now Hungary is a neighboring country to Romania. So there were uprisings in Hungary against the communism, uh, against the communist regime that had been installed there by Soviet Union after World War II. And for a time, it looked like they were going to break away from the Soviet sphere of influence. And my father, you know, in university, he had started to get mixed up in. Uh, demonstrations in support of you know, of Hungarians and you know their uh, desire for for a free country mm -hmm. um so he eventually got picked up by the secret police and he spent 5 years in uh, prison um very hard prison you know uh, political prisoners they, they had it really bad he did hard labor in re-education camps because you know that that's what the communist regime would do they would uh, not just imprison you but they would uh use you as, you know, <laughs> unpaid uh, workforce. Uh, some of the biggest projects in uh, Romania were built with this kind of uh, labor, actually. Prison broke his free spirit, for sure. And um, I can tell that retroactively looking at things um, because he never wanted to talk about that experience. And, you know, we knew that he had done, you know, prison like that. And uh, whenever we would ask him a question, he would just close up and, you know, not want to go there. So obviously that's, that's the sign of abuse that he suffered. And in our household, uh, going against the regime wasn't 
encouraged or something that uh, we would actively think about because of his experience. And, you know, he would try to keep us far away from from anything like that. Because I'm, I'm sure, you know, having had the experience he had, um, he didn't want uh, his uh, children to... <laughs> to mm-hmm. end up in a in a similar situation. That's why we were in a way as a household more shielded or more disconnected from from events because there was this um element of 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 fear that you know things that can happen based on based on his experience and um he wasn't encouraging that at all, right? Um mm-hmm. That's why I said, you know, in our household, we, we weren't the type of people that we would um, uh, listen regularly to to Radio Free Europe or uh, Voice of America. We were not activists in any way, you know, not, not that there was mm-hmm. a lot of activism back then to begin with, but uh, you, you know what I mean. So, right. so there you have it. Had shared with me earlier that your family learned that the Berlin Wall fell down through Voice of America. Yeah. And I realized I was in the dark about what is Voice of America. In 1948, it became the legislative authorization for propaganda activities conducted by the U.S. Department of State, sometimes called public diplomacy. Voice Over America was only delivered outside of the U.S., and until 2013, with the signing of the Modernization Act, its content is now available to U.S. citizens. Today, it is part of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, USAGM, the government agency that oversees all non-military U.S. international broadcasting, and it is funded by the U.S. Congress. You are right to say that it's it's an... um uh, it's a propaganda outlet, uh, and maybe we can talk about what propaganda is, um, because um, a lot of people, I find, throw this word around because, without really understanding what it means. And um, it's used as a label many times to uh, just shut down debate or shut down an opponent, you know, just saying uh, you're spewing out propaganda or what have you. So let's let's first define what propaganda is, right? And yeah. again, after after having been exposed to that, and I, uh, a lot of uh, Eastern European people that grew up under those regimes, um, they learn to live with it and they learn to recognize it. Uh, and that is, I I, fi- I find, unfortunately, in the West today, very few people have this ability to to see propaganda through and through, and to discern when they're being uh, exposed to it, you know, no matter who does it. Okay, so, like I said, let's talk about what propaganda is. Let's do. So, so the first mistake that, you know, people make when, when they uh, think about propaganda, they think it's all lies. And actually, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, propaganda can be all truths. Uh, it's how those truths are shaped and how they're directed at what audience and what is the objective uh, that define, you know, whether something is uh, propaganda or not. So, uh, to summarize, propaganda really is communication that is aimed to further a certain point of view. Um, and the, the point of view might be 
considered wrong or false. Uh, but it's, it's not about that. It's about how you can create in the uh, uh, minds of people uh, perceptions that can lead them to that point of view. So, so th and th there's propaganda that is more effective and propaganda that is less effective. Uh, the propaganda that is less effective is the blunt one, which is trying to create that perception just by telling you, this is how things are. Take it or leave it. Well, I mean, lot, most of the people will see through that. How can you tell me that white is black and black <laughs> is white, right? That, that, that is the blunt form of propaganda. And mm -hmm. communist regimes uh, were actually uh, employing a lot of that um, uh, because they, they, their control over their populations were, were so absolute. That they actually didn't need to be sophisticated about it. Mm. Uh, okay, but in the West, you have the other form of propaganda, which is the much more successful one and much more insidious, um, where, no, it's not blunt like that. It's, it's covered in layers and layers um, of truth um, most of the time that is just um, presented in a way that um, leads you to that perception that they want to create, right? So it seems like you're arriving at it uh, through your own independent thinking when in fact you haven't. That is the definition of successful propaganda, changing or creating perceptions. And they might be very well using truths uh, uh, when they do that. So, coming back to, to the example we're talking about, Voice of America uh, and Radio Free Europe, they were both Western anti-communist uh, propaganda outlets in the sense that their own objective back then, and still is, mm -hmm. was to further a point of view that, you know, capitalism and democracy are good, and, you know, communism and socialism were, were bad. They were trying to further this point of view and um, create this perception with Eastern European uh, countries to make those populations arrive at this conclusion so that they could rise for themselves and tear apart uh, the communist and socialist regimes of Eastern Europe from the inside, right? Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the day, the objective was very simple. We know that in the Cold War, there was this uh, really cold, unspoken war between two ways of life and two, two ways of um, um, ruling the world, right? Like on, on one hand, you had the Soviet Union with uh, its satellites, and the, on the other hand, you had the uh, United States with NATO and, you know, the other aligned countries. And th 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 there was a, a very little gray area in, the, in between, which were the non-aligned non countries, right? So, at all turns, the, these groups or blocks, they, they were uh, making and broadcasting disseminated propaganda against each other in all ways possible, right? So, so radio... Uh, 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 Free Europe and Voice of America were like were that for for the Eastern audience. You can do propaganda through omission. When, for example, you, you're arguing a point and you're maximizing the good 
of your viewpoint and you're not talking about any of the shortcomings of your viewpoint or any you know or or your system that you're you're defending mm-hmm. that in effect is a form of propaganda and that's what voice of america used to do so back then so they they would take any opportunity to uh to speak about the shortcomings and the the problems of this uh communist regimes which which were many <laughs> no one's arguing that right but nowhere ever would they talk about the individual problems that also existed uh in the west and in the united states uh uh, uh particularly so uh you wouldn't hear uh things uh, you know on um on uh, voice of america about uh, the vietnam war and opposition to it you wouldn't hear um about you know the racist crisis in in america you wouldn't hear about the support that america gave to the apartheid regime in uh, uh in south africa for so many years uh, because they perceived it as a bulwark against communism in africa right so you you wouldn't hear about any of that all you would hear the faults of uh, the communist and socialist regimes magnified uh, uh to no end so that is a form of propaganda sometimes there is propaganda that is actually uh good in the sense that is following a uh define objective that you know will have a ben- beneficial uh effect to the society at large so uh, we're talking public education campaigns public education campaigns you know typically if, if they if they intend to establish you know uh scientific facts or or things uh that can take the society in a direction uh you know to to evolve uh, as a society you know that they can be very very beneficial but there's still propaganda campaigns right having lived under those times and being exposed to both forms of propaganda the blunt ones and the more successful ones we learned to quickly identify and uh see through propaganda of all shapes and forms here in in the western europe because people weren't exposed to a lot of that historically um this skill has not developed and people don't really recognize when they're being subjected to such campaigns mm-hmm. um and, and you know i always tell people that I, I speak to about this ask yourself when you see that all of a sudden you're bomb- bombarded through uh all outlets of communication at the same time uh with with uh the same message that should be your first red flag start asking questions it's if you have uh what we consider a wide uh, array of uh media or voices and you know 90% of them uh at one point they start they start basically um telling you the same thing uh, over and over again and it seems like they're all synchronized and you know they all started mm-hmm. about the same time it's time for you to ask questions how is that possible because that's that's just not how it works in the real world when that is the hallmark of an active campaign you know initiated by someone with an agenda that are being pushed onto the audience at the same time so that is the mark of a propaganda campaign In 1986, there was the Chernobyl event uh, in Ukraine, 
um, and Ukraine is again a neighboring country to Romania, to the north uh, of Romania. So um, we weren't parts of the country, actually parts of Romania were Moldova, which is a um, the eastern province, um, was actually pretty close to, to that event. Um, and uh, the information about that was suppressed. But we started seeing that um, there was a campaign that started where people would be distributed uh, iodine. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, so they, they would be distributed iodine and, you know, uh, it would be done um, under the guise of, uh, you know, like a public health and, you know, this is something that will strengthen you and so on and so forth, right? So that, that, that was something that came sort of out of nowhere. And people started asking themselves, why, why am I being asked to, to take this thing all of a sudden? Like, what's the benefit to me? And uh, um, it just sounded strange. It looked, looked and sounded strange, right? So then, next thing you know, mm -hmm. um, Voice of America had starts talking about you know this radiologic event in Ukraine, uh, where. Um, I don't know if, if you're aware how this was uh, exposed or discovered. There was radioactive clouds uh, that actually, uh, you know, the winds blew them away from Ukraine and, you know, elsewhere in Europe. And uh, those uh, ra uh, radioactive products were detected, um, you know, in the uh, atmosphere. Uh, and, and there was uh, products of um, radioactive reactions that are, were consistent with, uh, you know, nuclear power or nuclear weapons. Um, so um, it, it was clear it wasn't, uh, you know, nuclear weapons related, you know, no, it wasn't of that magnitude. It was, so, so what else could it be then? There would be a nuclear power accident, right? So that's how the facts came to light. And... Um, um, we learned about that listening to Voice of uh, America. And um, this became something that was undeniable. So, you know, a few days later, a couple weeks later, Soviet Union had to come clean and recognize that, yes, this is a major event and uh, um, this is where we are. By distrusting your government, that you start asking yourself questions. So, generally speaking, I'm of the opinion that uh, governments should have as little influence in the personal lives of, of people as possible. So you can say I'm a libertarian at heart. And that, of mm -hmm. course, is, is uh, uh, shaped by the experiences I had mm -hmm. with the nanny state. When you are distrustful of your government, you stop taking you know, everything at face value and you start asking questions such as who benefits from this, why are all media outlets presenting me only this point of view and not, you know, there's no alternative voices? Um, you know, uh, example that comes to mind is the Iraq war. I know that's very controversial in the United mm -hmm. States, uh, but uh, not so controversial in elsewhere uh, in the world where if you ask pretty much anyone, um, uh, you know, outside of the United States, was Iraq war a good thing or a bad thing? They will tell you it was a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But if you ask the same question in the US, mm -hmm. uh, you might get a much more uh, balanced view where, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, it was a good thing and we, we got rid of Saddam and it was, it was a good thing. Uh, um, so that to me is the mark of a successful influence campaign that took place in the United States where you had 
um, you know, a, a government basically was feeding the population information through all the outlets. They were basically saying the same thing over and over again until the point was disseminated in the population at large. If this feels familiar, we don't have to look far to see how this shows up. According to the Pew Research Center survey on U.S. politics and policy, published in September of 2020, just 20% of American adults trust the government in Washington to do the right thing almost always or most of the time. And this is consistent in the last three presidencies, from Bush to Obama to Trump. I guess you could say we have trust issues. We have to be distrustful of of government, number one. Really? Yes. <laughs> There's always an average uh, um, or, or, you know, the vast, vast majority of people or opinions fall within a certain area. And then the, the, there are some outliers to the left and to the right. Mm. You would see all those views and opinions. Uh, they're given, not equal airtime, but they're given at least an opportunity to be presented. When you have one viewpoint being presented exclusively, the other one being minimized and suppressed even, you know, uh, being labeled conspiracy theories, being labeled, uh, you know, harmful content, um, uh, you have active se censorship even, you know, where uh, things are being removed from, from social media and from uh, various outlets. Again, that to me is not a free society. A free society presents uh, points of view in support of the uh, uh, discussion to be had, uh, and then the, the individual can make up their mind. If we bombard the individual with, you know, just an approved narrative, and then we cut down everything else, once again, I will have to say, it starts to resemble more and more what we used to deal with in the communist countries. the heyday of newspapers and media, you had such things uh, as the Washington Papers, you know, the Watergate scandal, uh, things like that, where you had major news outlets that, you know, they, they were independent and they were making money through, through the pursuit of, of uh, journalism. And it was a good livelihood to be had. Um, you know, people would subscribe to news, uh, newspapers, um, the, the, these were uh, companies that were doing good, you know, by any mm -hmm. measure of, of the market, right? Um, this, hence, they had the financial independence um, and that they weren't part of conglomerates even, you know, right? they, they could live uh, as uh, separate entities and they were free to pursue that truth and they were free to pursue that journalistic integrity, right? Journalists today, they have started abrogating their responsibility of holding power to account, and they have become very much just another conduit for power to distribute approved uh, information to, to the society at, at large. Journalists are people, and they want to be successful. Success in this profession has been defined for a long time in scopes. 
you know, like having the scope, having the inside track to information, having your insider in the White House. Enter the rise of the anonymous source, mm-hmm. which provides these scopes. What we would call a source before, it has become this anonymous attribution that's really being abused, if you ask me. So you, you have journalists that, you know, in the pursuit of that scope or in the pursuit of that insider information, they are becoming cozy with uh, power. So then the information that arrives uh, to, to them is not information they actively sought and uncovered. It is information that was fed to them by the power conduits. Mm. Uh, do we really think that those power conduits will, fi- will feed uh, unadulterated information? Mm-hmm. That, that is a rare thing. That is what we call a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and that, that is very rare, you know, that's because again, people don't want to put their livelihoods at risk. So just, you have people like that, you know, they, they, it's their convictions and, you know, they have no ulterior motive and they mm-hmm. become whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, immediately you start <laughs> to see them labeled as, you know, uh, Russian agents, mm. you know, Snowden comes to mind. have the the blunt form of uh, editorial control where you're going to have somebody in, in the C-suite, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that will tell you, no, you cannot uh, approach this or no, you cannot touch this subject, subject it's a taboo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you have the less blunt uh, form of editorial control and, and uh, uh, influence where um, you will have an element of self-censorship that you feel you have to apply in order to be in line with the editorial line of that uh, outlet. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, the person that had the huge scoop from Edward Snowden uh, with the NSA and everything that The Guardian UK uh, exposed with, with regard to that. He felt that he had to leave The Guardian because several years later started to assert more editorial control in uh, uh, in his reporting. Now, this is a person that we can say has already demonstrated that he is holding power accountable and he is speaking truth to power. So, you know, the, the moment he felt that Guardian was not the place to do that anymore, he went and founded his own outlet, The Intercept. Um, and then, guess what? <laughs> a month ago, uh, he actually decided to leave that outlet uh, because that outlet, you know, by and large with contributions from from him, had grown into a much larger construct than when mm-hmm. he was one of the founders. And editorial control had started to be asserted over his reporting at his outlet that he founded. Self-censorship, moving away from stories that are uncomfortable. Case in point, it was the Hunter Biden uh, story that uh, broke before elections. And, you know, he wanted to do some a piece about that and some investigative reporting. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to, uh, basically, or n- not in the form that he, he wanted to. He had editors that said uh, uh, very clearly to him, you need to adjust your piece uh, before we can publish it.
enter the age of social media and um, the age of the internet when now we all know these uh, news outlets have been whittled down by the advent of free services and free content and why would I pay for uh, a newspaper subscription when I can just go on Google or you know on Facebook and you know they feed me a diet of news that's you know largely by, by and large is sourced from these outlets we now have these corporations and economic behemoths um, that are needed for a media outlet to thrive financially because the advent of the internet and the social media basically um, reduced their financial streams and income streams uh, to the point where it's become impossible to do independent journalism. So either you align yourself with a you know, larger parent organization that has the financial muscle uh, or you know you you may be you may be willing to pursue through journalism and through journalistic integrity, but how are you gonna do it if you don't have the resources? I do believe that social media uh, and these so-called platforms are responsible for a lot of this um, segregation and divisiveness in the society today. By the nature of their algorithms and their growth objectives, they create these thought bubbles and they create what we call echo chambers. And why is that? Uh, it's very simple. Uh, what is the number one objective of any commercial enterprise, you know, under a capitalist system, mm -hmm. uh, is growth. Next time on Anatomy of Change. Are we on an on-ramp to the unknown? We continue our conversation before and after the events of January 6th. And that is why you have people that are abandoning these platforms because they feel discriminated against. Uh, so they are abandoning these platforms and moving to, to alternate um, uh, outlets. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, the answer is it depends. If those alternate outlets are just going to be a replica of Facebook or Twitter just on the other side of the political discourse, no, they're not any better. You know, they will be the same problem only flipped on its head. Okay? But if those other outlets will allow diversity of thought and diversity of principles and will allow debate and arguments and they will allow, uh, you know, the bell curve of opinion, then they will be successful and they will thrive. Otherwise, they will just be yet another echo chamber. Anatomy of Change is executive produced by Tay Moeller with post-production, editing, and mixing by James Fleege. Special thanks to Romeo, TM, and AT. The original series music, titled Reborn, was composed by Adrian Berenguer. Additional music featured in this episode by Kadir Demir, The David Roy Collective, Philip Daniel, and James Fleege. Our website, where you can listen to all episodes, music, and artists featured, and find companion content, is anatomyofchange.org.